This evening's talk <coughs> will be an exploration, or at least a partial exploration, of mindfulness. And we'll begin with a few moments of sitting as though sitting under the Bodhi tree with Siddhartha Gautama 2,500 years ago. So closing your eyes and we can imagine that we're all in Bodhgaya and sitting under that Bodhi tree together with this about-to-be Buddha. Towards the end of that long and now very famous night under the bow tree and after Mara, the personification of all the dark and potentially destructive forces in the mind had let fly the poison arrows of greed, aversion and delusion at Siddhartha the arrows that Mara hoped would stick and then distract Siddhartha from the clarity and the strength of his great vow and his courageous determination to fully awaken. Mara shot the last arrow that was left in the quiver, the arrow of doubt, self-doubt, accompanied by the words by these words what makes you think you have the right to be sitting here where and how you are just who do you think you are anyway and the bodhisattva the just about to be buddha protected within the great strength of his mindful presence, which was enlivened by a keen interest and a penetrating sense of investigation accompanied by clear discernment. This about-to-be Buddha, supported by the tremendous energy of his determination and flow of an effortless effort, imbued with an enlivening and refreshing joy, balanced within the deep power and cool ease of an unwavering and undistracted mind. Siddhartha Gautama sitting under the bow tree that night with unshakable stability, of an evenness and balance of receptive presence as though he were an immovable mountain. With all of these qualities, these factors of mind and heart perfectly in place. And in response to to Mara's challenge, the Bodhisattva, 
in his amazing grace just simply reached down and touched the earth with the fingertips of his right hand letting Mara know that the earth was bearing witness to his right to be sitting where and how he was And Mara was defeated, never again to have any power over the Buddha. And so we sit, maybe not always quite like the Buddha sat on that night 2,500 years ago, but we sit. And we practice with sincerity and determination. Maybe at home alone. Maybe with your sangha, your practice community. And now here in retreat. As awakening beings, as we practice, the particular qualities of mind and heart that were so perfectly in place within Siddhartha that night under the bow tree, as we practice, these capacities of heart and mind continue to develop, deepen, and mature within ourselves. It's inevitable, actually. It's inevitable that this happens if we just keep on practicing. This evening we'll explore the quality or the factor of mind that's really the most important or most fundamental, really, underlying factor of our practice. Mindfulness. And as we explore together this evening, allow the words to be a touch point or a pointing out towards directly connecting with mindfulness within yourself, which is facilitated by what I like to call listening from the heart rather than from the head. And so in support of this, it's helpful to relax deeply in and through the body. So now let's just take a couple of moments to really drop into the body with a bright, easy attention. Relaxing from head to toe. and letting the whole body, heart, and mind deeply relax into simple, direct presence. And with an open heart and mind, simply hearing.
So mindfulness. The Buddha spoke about mindfulness as being like a precious gem and that it's supported by seclusion, impartiality, and renunciation. Really the very conditions or potential conditions that we have here in our retreat. A pervasive and deep mindfulness along with a calm, concentrated mind are key factors for the mind, the heart, to ripen into the letting go that's necessary for awakening. I often think of mindfulness as the mother, the great mother of all of the factors of mind necessary for awakening. In fact, really the great mother of the whole of our practice. In a sense, it's the factor that factor of mind that gives birth to all of the other factors necessary for liberation. The Buddha spoke about mindfulness as being the chief, he called it. So maybe a kind of male-female way of speaking about it. We could say that mindfulness is the chief mother. And when it really begins to be established in us, it's the ingredient that offers us our greatest protection. The Pali word for mindfulness is sati. And it's sometimes translated as memory or to remember. So if we break this word down, to remember, to reconnect, to connect or reconnect to the present moment's experience of body and mind. I think that for many of us, at least at times, we forget to be mindful because of our strong habituated conditioning to not remember, to not directly, freshly, purely connect to the present moment's experience, but to remain resting in the inertia of our habits. Once in a Dhamma discussion with friends some years ago, someone asked, what makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? Really a very good question. It's such a common word these days, mindfulness, which is a good thing. And it's also, because it's so common and used in in a very broad way, some of its depth and some of its potency is dissipated. So what is it that makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? The great intimacy of mindfulness. This moment's experience is just this. Absolutely believing our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, touch, mind, and heart. Absolutely believing our body and mind. 
meaning in this case, absolutely believing what comes to be known through cultivating a powerful, direct, immediate, mindful awareness. Really being receptive to what is without the forethought of concepts, past experiences, or ideas of how we think it is or should be or could be. And as the great Indian spiritual teacher Krishnamurti said, beginning as though you don't know anything about it and moving from innocence to innocence. This relationship to experience is sometimes called the don't know mind. With this great intimacy of mindful presence opening us to understanding the way it really is, which may appear so clear and so simple that we can hardly believe it. The Buddha's mindfulness asks us to not remain resting in the inertia of our old habits, but to really meet the experience of the moment with a fresh, connected intimacy, to come close to see how it is. Mindfulness doesn't kind of float or skim along the surface of things. It connects, going right into the object. And yet at the same time, it's not a sticky, fixed sort of connection. Mindful attention is a clear, fluid connection that lights on an object just long enough and just deep enough to know it. Mindfulness is the active aspect of awareness. And again, as I offered last evening, it's a non-judgmental or non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to present moment's experience. And at its best, purely receptive, in its relationship to whatever's presenting itself in the present moment. And of course, we pay attention to a whole range of experience, including things that we usually do quite mechanically. Breathing, walking, moving the body, seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, touching, thinking. We pay attention to phenomena that's pleasant, quite pleasant, that might be wonderful and easy to be with. And we give attention to experience that may be unpleasant, experience that may be difficult to be with. We open to it all. No parts left out. It's really the very stuff of our lives This is what our path is. This is our path to liberation. Mindfulness is about living in the action. Living in the action of the body, heart, and mind. Living in the present moment's experience. 
And in a sense, we forget ourself. We, in a sense, lose our self, so to say, in what is. So there's just what is without anything added or needing to be added, and without taking anything away or needing to take anything away. With mindful awareness, we have the possibility of not thinking, I'm doing this or I'm doing that. The moment that we think, I'm doing this, we're creating or recreating a sense of a separate self creating a separation, a disconnection from the reality of the way of things and living in an idea, the idea of I, the idea of me and mine, instead of living in the action. As you engage in the three creative practices offered during these two weeks, movement, seeing, drawing, and writing, with mindfulness being the underlying root of your practice, the opportunity to mindfully investigate and see the presence of freedom or suffering in relationship to self-view, in relationship to the erroneous view of a separate solid, static me. As this unfolds, your experiences of freedom and your experiences of suffering will become clearer and clearer. The magic and the great beauty of mindfulness is that it takes us out of illusion, out of delusion, directly into reality. Without it, we're bound. We're imprisoned in the assumed appearance of things. And we get caught again and again and again in reactivity and attachment to these not clearly seen appearances. The result being that we unnecessarily suffer in this believed unreality. The venerable uh, Buddhist scholar, Venerable Analayo, puts it this way in his book Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization. And these are his words. The element of non-reactive watchful receptivity in sati forms the foundation for satipatthana as an ingenious middle path which neither suppresses the contents of experience nor compulsively reacts to them. One of the central tasks of sati is the de-automatization of habitual reactions and perceptual evaluations. Sati, thereby, leads to a progressive restructuring of perceptual appraisal and culminates in an undistorted vision 
of reality as it is. And he goes on to say, this technique of simple recognition constitutes an ingenious way of turning obstacles to meditation into meditation objects. Practicing in this way bare awareness of a hindrance, for instance, becomes a middle path between suppression and indulgence. Important aspects of sati are bare and equanimous receptivity combined with a broad and open state of mind. No matter who we are, or where, or how we live, all of us, all of us want to live with ease. All of us want happiness. And it seems that most of us hope, and maybe even assume, that much of our life experience that at any given time is permanently in place. And of course, from myriad perspectives, we want life to suit our passing fancies, our expectations, and our deepest desires. And as it is in relationship to this, most people spend most of their time and energy trying to accomplish this through external experiences. By getting this and that, or him or her, doing this and that, going here and there. And we go for, try, for sustaining, ongoing sustaining satisfaction and contentment through the constantly changing world of our senses and thoughts, as well as through the myriad and constantly changing relationships that go on throughout our lives. And as many of you know, at least conceptually, none of this really works in terms of providing sustaining satisfaction. We have momentary satisfaction, but none of it really works in terms of providing that ongoing, sustaining depth of satisfaction. The Buddha spoke about happiness that's beyond our ordinary experience of pleasure. He said that, and this might be surprising, he said that happiness arises when we're mindful. Happiness arises when we're mindful. And so we take the Buddha's words to heart and look closely in order to sense, see, and know our experience directly. It's through our meditation practice that mindfulness is cultivated. Mindfulness happens, we could say, when we really, truly bring our attention to the present moment 
And we practice it over and over again, moment by moment by moment. Once we relinquish the belief that there's a more spiritually perfect, right, or useful moment than the one we're in, we have truly then and wholly embraced our life and infused it with the energy for awakening. Our practice is one of deep intimacy. The deepest intimacy with our own experiences, which as practice develops, as it expands and as it matures, it becomes an intimacy, a kind of profound intimacy with all beings, all things. The direction of mindfulness is to be aware. Intimately aware of it, whatever it is in the moment. See and know what is, what really truly is. How is it in this present moment? And this present moment? And this present moment? This is a basic foundation for all forms of Buddhist practice. How is it in experiencing the eye? E-Y-E. Ear. Nose. Tongue. Touch. How is it in experiencing the mind? How is it really? Not what you hope it is or want it to be or imagine it to be or don't want it to be. A mindful relationship to the present moment's experience is what allows clarity and true understanding or insight to arise. To really just simply and naturally arise. Which it inevitably does. We don't do anything to make it happen. The truth is actually not very far away at all. It's right here, ever-present, immediately close, always and everywhere, right here, right now. And it's our greatest protection. Sometimes in Taos I've taught a weekly class or over a period of weeks, uh, a a mindfulness class. And usually at the beginning of the class, we share something, the various students in the class share something regarding their week, their week of practice, and often something uh, about how uh, it has related or or, um, emerged in their daily life. One class, uh, a woman came in and this is what she shared. She said that she was watering her garden that morning. And she'd watered her garden hundreds of times. But she said that morning when she watered her garden, it was as though it was for the very first time. Because she was so mindful. She didn't say that. She just said, 
It was just like it was the very first time. And then as she was sharing her experience with, with us, her mind took a big leap. And she said, how have we survived for so long without being mindful? And she went on to say, terrible things are decided and done when mindfulness isn't present. She had quite a quite a morning that morning. She saw a lot. The Buddha Dharma is about transforming the mind, transforming the heart. And in fact, if we're not bringing our full attention to the present moment, if we're not mindful, we're living at a distance from experience, living at a distance from life itself, as I mentioned last night, which just keeps the circle, the reactive cycle of conditioned habit patterns going round and round and round. Another way of looking at this is that without mindfulness, it's as though we're living life through binoculars that are out of focus. Our perspective, our perception is blurred. We experience life through the filters of ideas, preconceptions, opinions, judgments, hopes, fears, maybe also similar past experiences. So, a very ordinary example, probably something that each of you has had, you meet someone new and you don't see them as they actually are. You see them maybe in relationship to your thoughts about them, how much you think you like them or are attracted to them or how much you think you don't like them or aren't attracted to them. Or maybe they remind you of somebody else. And so you see this new person in relationship to the similar qualities of this other person that you're thinking about. Or you see this new person in relationship to how you hope they are or maybe what you want from them or hope you can get from them or hope you won't get from them. With all of this, you're not experiencing this person you've just met for the very first time just simply as they are. And as I mentioned last evening, have you ever gotten to know someone and in fact found out that they weren't at all like your imagined ideas about them were? Without mindfulness, everything we perceive can be like this. Everything we see, taste, hear, touch, smell, think is immediately interpreted back to us in conformity with our habitual thoughts and habitual habit patterns. Meditation practice grounded in mindful awareness is about bringing everything into a clear, sharp focus 
to see things as they truly are, as though for the first time, without judgment, with a mind that's fresh, with what's often called beginner's mind. A number of years ago now, when one of my grandsons was two and a half years old, I had the great good fortune to be with him and his mother when he uh, saw a pine cone for the very first time. And we were taking a walk out behind their house. And he saw this pine cone on the ground. He picked it up. And he looked at it, turned it every which way, every possible way, looking at it from every direction. He put it up to his nose, smelled it, turned it all around, smelled every part of it. He stuck his tongue out and licked it all over, the, all over itself, really investigating what is this from every sense door. Stuck it to his ear, listened. And then his mother and I, she being a good mother and me being a good grandmother, we dutifully repeated, told him, or we dutifully said, this is a pine cone. And this little two-and-a-half-year-old Buddha, or training in training Buddha, <laughs> looked at us kind of quizzically, but he was a good boy, so he repeated pine cone, the word pine cone. And then he went back to his direct experience of pine cone with his fresh, open, beginner's mind. This is an attitude of mind that we can learn or maybe relearn to bring into our life or back into our life. And it's transformative. It's transformative and potentially deeply healing. One definition of these teachings and practices is that they're the best medicine, the best medicine to make us well in the deepest and most profound sense. There are four domains or four ways of setting up or establishing mindfulness in the here and now. And this evening we'll explore the first of these domains, which is paying attention to the body in the body. Just the body as such. Not one's ideas about it or interpretations of it, but just the body in the body. And of course there are many and varied and specific aspects to the body to notice and to give a careful attention to. And as all of you know, one of our primary practice orientations to the body is mindfulness of breathing. The development of the mind and the understanding that's accessible through mindfulness of breath is really potentially profound. In making the simple sensations 
of the in-breath and the out-breath at the nostrils, or the rising and falling movement of the breath in the belly, or the sensorial experience of the breath coming in and going through and out the whole body. As we do this and make it a basic ground of mindful attention, I've been deeply grateful and even awed at times at the depth and the breadth of the purification of the heart, of the mind, that happens, as well as what comes to be sensed, seen, and understood with a simple and careful attention just to the direct experience of breath happening. So just for a moment now, if your eyes aren't already closed, close your eyes lightly and let the attention drop into the breath. Mindfully absorb into the rising and falling movement of the breath in the belly or the sensations of the breath in the nostril upper lip area or the breath as it moves through the whole body. And doing this without any self, or with as little self as possible. Just the sensations of the breath. And now just very simply notice, are you trying to control, trying to manipulate the breath? Or are you simply allowing the breath to breathe itself? Very important to notice this without judgment, without any self-recrimination. In a moment of clear seeing, there's often a sense of relief. As a friend of mine says, seeing is relieving. At times we might particularly notice each breath, each inhalation and exhalation, very directly as sensation or as movement or maybe as vibration in the area of the body where we connect with the breath. Noticing it may be right when it begins and staying with it all the way through to the end. And maybe actually noticing the ending, the cessation of an exhalation and the beginning of the next inhalation. Or we may just very simply notice the movement of the in and out breathing at the nostrils or in the belly or through the body. Just this. 
which helps to cultivate an increasingly quiet, tranquil, and peaceful breath and an overall body-mind calm that's really a very fine support towards developing a more refined mindful attention. And the body in the body. Mindfulness of the four postures. Not our ordinary, everyday, kind of quite casual way of noticing our bodily activity, but a closer, more intimate, ongoing, and careful attention to the body in every position. Standing, sitting, lying down, walking, and the various movements of the body in getting up and down, flexing and extending the arms and legs, turning, lifting and carrying, even bringing mindfulness of the body in the body to the experiences of falling asleep and waking. Who's moving? Who's lying down? Is there a someone, a me, an I behind this walking, this standing, this sitting, this movement? Beginning to see the postures and the the movement of the body just as it is in itself. Can standing be just simply known as standing? Sitting is just simply sitting. Walking is just simply walking without the layer of I am or the internal feeling of this is me walking, this is me sitting, etc. Once many years ago one of my Burmese teachers, the Venerable Saida Upandita, asked me in a practice interview, is there a woman or a man or a person when you're mindful of and noting walking, standing, sitting, or any bodily sensations. Well, for just a moment I was caught by the question, which in retrospect I decided was a kind of test of my practice at the time. But very quickly, during that practice interview, there was a spontaneous reflection and a response to Saida Upandita. I said, no, there's no woman or man or anybody known. When I'm directly connected with and mindful of walking or whatever bodily phenomena is happening. So, a good question and observation you might ask yourself. Ask of yourself and ask yourself at some point. And maybe through the great intimacy of mindful awareness of the body in the body, we also begin to notice the ongoing flow of conditions that every 
single moment of experience arises out of. For instance, the intention to, followed by action or inaction. In the intimacy of mindfulness, we might begin to notice where the energy of intention, or volition as it's called, begins. Where it starts from and how it feels in our body. I don't in some independent, mysteriously isolated way stand up or not stand up, or sit or lift an arm or a leg or take a step or speak particular words. If we think and feel that our actions come solely from the place of a separated isolated I and me will eventually or maybe quickly experience some degree of suffering. Our actions of body, mind, and speech are always a response or a reaction in relationship to something that occurred in our immediate field of experience or in the past. As mindful awareness of the body in the body blossoms, there's a very natural, non-conceptual, intuitive, growing understanding of the subtler sense of suffering that begins to take hold, which can then open our heart to an unimaginable expanse of compassion in relationship to all beings and in relationship to ourself as well. How identified are you? How identified are you? How strong is the clinging to this constantly changing and totally interrelated phenomena we call our body. Some years ago, a student um, named Roy, who was a very deeply dedicated practitioner, right up until his dying moment, he died of AIDS-related complications. And I was sitting with him in the hospital one afternoon, I went and visited him daily here in Taos in the hospital for a number of weeks. And I was sitting in the hospital with him one afternoon as he was lying in bed. And at that point, there wasn't much left of his body. And he was lying there, and he stretched his arm slowly up overhead and turning it back and forth, back and forth, looking at it very carefully, and with great interest. And then he said in a very cool and cool, cool way, but at the same time quite odd, he was quite awed by it, he said, all he said was one word. He said, wow. The form, 
the posture and the movements of the body are totally dependent or interdependent on conditions. They arise dependent on conditions just as, for instance, does the arising of anger or the sensation of coolness on the skin or the liking or disliking of some particular experience or Roy's body being as thin and as light as a reed. Everything happens because of a whole set of conditions coming together moment by moment by moment. Choices are made, but in truth they too are always a product of the play of various conditions. Can we give such a clear, unfettered and intimate attention to the body in itself, its movements and the process of intention that we begin to directly experience this truth? The next domain of mindfulness of the body that the Buddha points us toward is giving attention to the parts of the body. All 32 of them, as it's taught in the classical Buddhist texts. Hair, skin, muscles, bones, and all of the various internal organs and fluids. In your practice here in retreat, you most likely notice them as they make themselves known such as the intestines, the bladder, heart, lungs, maybe the liver, mucus, saliva, etc. The classical 32 parts of the body practice is one that isn't uh, often taught here in the West, though it can be really quite a powerful practice in beginning to dissolve one's ideas and identification with this body as being a solid entity and it being mine, being me. And I have no doubt that you have noticed many parts of your body even during this first full day of the retreat. But how often have you noticed them in a mindful way. How identified? How identified are you with the hair on your head? Or the lack of it? Or its color? Or the hair on your body, for instance? How do you attend to the experience of your intestine and the digestive process therein? or a moment or many moments experience of the heart? How do you experience your skin, this bag of flesh that holds all the various contents of the body? How often do you experience your nails, teeth, saliva, sweat, mucus, or 
any part of your body or bodily experience with what I like to call the extraordinary qualities of mindful awareness. A non-judgmental, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting, non-self-identified kind of attention. Just the body in the body. Without the layers of ideas and interpretations and concerns about it. Just the body as a body. This can be a very powerful practice in beginning to dissolve one's conceptual idea of solidity and identification with one's own body and other bodies. And some words from the Buddha. Abiding, contemplating the body as a body, internally, externally. He or she abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This is how a yogi abides, contemplating the body as a body. So just consider for a moment, how do you identify yourself? For most of us, if not all of us, a primary and large part of our personal identification is related to our body. We identify ourselves in good part through rupa. Rupa, the Pali word that translates as material form or materiality. So considering this for a moment in relationship to yourself. I'm a woman. Usually I say I'm a woman or a man, but there's no men in the room right now, so I'm a woman. I'm thin or fat or not too thin or not too fat. I'm tall or short or of average height. I'm good-looking, beautiful, ugly, plain, attractive, unattractive. I have dark skin. I have light skin. I have good skin or bad skin. My nose is large or too big or small or cute. I'm wrinkled and old and weak or I'm young and strong and smooth-skinned. And on and on it goes. With all of these personal identities constantly changing over the years or just within days or just within moments in our mind. Even though we engage tremendous effort and energy and time in clinging to these various identities. There's really no place to hang our identity hat for more than a few moments, if that. No place to rest in this constantly changing relative perception and idea of who we think we are. Another important and potentially profound, insightful aspect of mindfulness that can be established in the body is related to the fact that our bodies are really no different than any other form, any other rupa. 
our human form is of the same elements as any and every other form. Nothing more, nothing less. So potentially a non-ordinary way to cut through the concept of this body as a solid and static entity, to cut through the I am identification. The Buddha offered quite a profound teaching and very specific practice in conjunction with this teaching. And if we sincerely and seriously take it up, it can be a window opening us to the direct experience and discernment and understanding of one aspect of ultimate reality, the ultimate reality of rupa, form, one aspect of the reality of how it really is, how or what this body as well as every other form really is. The teaching and practice is about directly discerning the four great essentials or the four great elements earth, water, fire, and air or wind through directly experiencing the specific characteristics of each of these elements in the body in relationship to sensations. When you're sitting, when you're walking, when you're lying down, and when the body is moving, and also within the discernment of the breath. So I'd like to mention the characteristics of each of these four great essential or these four great elements. And they'll be familiar to you because you've already been doing this. The characteristics that we come to know through sensations, bodily sensations, the characteristics of the earth element are hardness, roughness, heaviness, softness, smoothness, lightness. The characteristics of the water element that we connect to through sensations in the body are flowing and cohesion. The fire element characteristics, heat or warmth, coldness or coolness. And the characteristics of the air or the wind element that we connect with through bodily sensations are pushing, supporting, All and each of these bodily sensations are very readily available for us to experience and to be mindful of at any moment. As I said, when you're sitting, walking, breathing, moving, they're happening. And we begin to notice them. How intimately, how mindfully connected are you to these most basic and universal experiences. The body in its elemental nature. Essentially, no different than any other form. 
The last instruction from the Buddha in relationship to this first establishment of mindfulness is the contemplation of the stages of decay in a corpse. And seemingly not something that we have much of an opportunity to do in a retreat setting. But the truth of the matter is that there are many kinds of corpses around to observe in a place like this. Insects, maybe birds or maybe other creatures, and certainly the corpses of plants and trees and flowers. All forms of life are mortal. All forms, all rupas are mortal. They have the nature to die and decompose, or just to deconstruct and decompose. Consequently, it's possible to observe this directly. I've been in retreat in various places over the years, and at times quite purposefully observed the dying process of flowers and grasses, and continued over time to observe, observe them go through all of the changes that things do as and after they die. And once when I was on retreat with a few friends on Cape Cod in Massachusetts where we rented a house on the shore of the ocean for a couple of months uh, for practice together, I had uh, the great good fortune, actually it may be only good fortune in the world of Dhamma practice, but I had the great good fortune uh, in that retreat to come upon a, a dead seal on the beach. And so every day for a month, I walked down to that body and I sat with it for a while, observing and really letting the process of decomposition and decay, letting it in, which in this instance was happening very quickly because it was being helped along by the many seagulls who found the seal's decaying flesh to be delicious food. This daily practice during that month-long retreat was really a heart-mind-changing experience for me on many levels. Ajahn Sumedho, who until relatively recently was the abbot of Amaravati Monastery in England and who is the senior Western monk in the Thai forest tradition of Ajahn Chah, He tells about a time when he was living in the monastery in Thailand and he asked that he be able to spend part of the day practicing in the city morgue. And because he was a monk, the authorities let him go in, although he says they were quite reluctant to do so. He says that all of his sense doors, which included his conditioned mind, were fully challenged. Actually, what he said is they were fully assaulted. He said the first thing that hit him was the smell. He said it almost drove him to run out the door. But he just stayed mindfully present. And he said little by little it became tolerable. It was just a smell, just a scent. He spoke about his long-standing and deeply embedded assumptions regarding this package of the human form being completely undone in his mind and heart. 
as he took in the various stages of decay that were all around him in the morgue. And he mentioned that at one point he looked up on the ceiling and saw all sorts of parts, as he put it, which at first he found quite puzzling. And then he quickly realized that the bloated body in front of him could actually explode at any moment, which he said he dearly hoped would not happen while he was there. And it didn't. He was grateful for that. He said when he went back out onto the street that he said he saw people in a radically new way with a radically wide open heart. It isn't about being morbid or being strange in some way. All forms, all rupas, living and non-living, are mortal. And we're so attached to forms, probably first and foremost to our own form, and also all sorts of other forms. For many of us, our attachment is so strong that most of the time we live with an almost constant and often unrecognized desire for an attachment to, for instance, forms that please us, or forms that are beautiful to us, or forms that are amusing or interesting to us, or simply the very taken-for-granted familiar forms. I think that what is actually strange and amazing is that fairly often we think and we act as if we and they won't change, won't die. Which if we begin to see this habitual way of thinking and acting, if we begin to see it closely, we find that it produces an almost constant state of subtle or not so subtle tension and stress in our heart, mind, and body. The Buddha's instruction to attend to corpses of whatever form can really be helpful towards cutting through this state of tension and stress, cutting through clinging, cutting through suffering. How do you know the body? How are you established in this first domain, this first foundation of mindfulness? Mindfulness practice trains us to drop into the body again and again and again. What we find when we connect and look carefully in the body are sensations. Much of the drama of our thought, feelings, and action begins with sensations. Through mindfulness, we train ourselves to be in the body to receive them. To be present with the sensations of our body is not an act of will. It's an act of unconditional acceptance 
which is one aspect of metta, of unconditional loving-kindness. It's an act of unconditional acceptance with grace and at least some degree of equanimity. This acceptance implies not fighting or resisting what's presenting itself, not wanting things to be different, and not concealing or hiding from the moment's experience in the body. In such moments, we feel and intuitively know our activity as belonging to life. Some very simple, ordinary examples that relate to our life here in retreat and, of course, also outside of a formal retreat setting. We might wash our dishes as an act of generosity and love in that sense, as a holy act. We open the door, clearly sensing and knowing what the wrist is doing, what the hand is doing. Maybe we feel the body contract, turning away from cold or from very hot weather. We catch ourselves and consciously with mindful awareness rise up to meet it. The choice to be mindfully aware is often an act of courage. The essential practice is to return to whatever presents itself in our experience from moment to moment. To feel and know the actual physical sensations of our aliveness. in relationship to the various movement practices some of you might already be doing during this retreat, maybe some stretching or yoga, tai chi. And with the upcoming movement practices that Wynne will be offering, and with walking practice, and our ordinary everyday movements, movement invites attention. It asks us to practice a kind of devotion to ourselves. Not in a self-centered way, but as an act of respect and loyalty and care. Instead of abandoning ourselves, we can learn to inhabit this body in a wholesome and wise way. Someone once said, And it may have been the famous dancer and choreographer Martha Graham. I think this is who said this. The body is tremendously homesick for us. And it waits patiently for our return. Though we may have ignored its invitation for many years, When we do say yes, it's immediately available, full of life and full of know-how. And all of a sudden, we find that we need no training to be fully alive, that we only lack the determination to feel our aliveness. 
the body is an excellent meditation subject. It will always tell the truth. For instance, if you break a leg, the body is not going to give off a pleasant feeling. It doesn't have the capacity to get lost in the past. It doesn't have the capacity to project in the future, into the future. And it's the meditation object that most easily bridges the gap between formal and informal aspects of our meditation practice. Also, mindful presence in the body can be a safe haven when thoughts or emotions are raging and maybe feeling too overpowering to be with. As I think we all experience, at least to some degree, we're living in a time when the very rapid development of technology and the pace of our lives are making it more and more difficult to stay connected to our bodies. Consequently, cultivating the intention to practice with this first domain of mindfulness becomes more and more important. Mindfulness practice is like a treasure hunt. Within the framework of our practice, we each find our way. And because each of us has experienced specific conditioning along the way of our lives, many aspects of the path and its fruits uniquely emerge in relationship to this conditioning for each one of us. The treasure, the fruits that we discover along the way are healing, beautiful, and the simple universal truths of the way of things. And this is what sets us free. And from the Buddha. There's one thing that when cultivated and regularly practiced leads to deep spiritual intention, to peace, to mindfulness, and clear comprehension to vision and knowledge, to a happy life here and now, and to the culmination of wisdom and awakening. And what is that one thing? It's mindfulness centered on the body. And I'd like to close the talk this evening with something that a, a Dhamma teacher friend of mine sent me <coughs> that came from one of her students. What are you, my young son, shouts gleefully at me several times a day over the past year. In his world, being is fluid. He's now a cheetah, now a crocodile, now a spaceman, now an earthworm. At the zoo, he tries on each new animal as we move from one exhibit to the next. Initially, I tried to play along. I'm a butterfly. He'd look at me critically. No, you're mama. My responses became mundane. I'm your mom. 
I'm a woman named Paloma. I'm tired. I'm trying to put your shoes on. He was utterly neutral to any response. For a time, I was profoundly annoyed with the question, internally wincing at each repetition. Leaning in, I came to understand this is I came to understand this not as irritation with my son, but with the effort it takes to constantly try to figure myself out. Eventually, I dropped the effort. The question became, became an invitation to wake up. My mindfulness bell. A tiny Buddha master shouting my own personal koan at, koan at me. What are you? Exactly. The question resonates in the open silence of awareness. Answers still pop up, both mundane and philosophical, in turns. I'm a river of being. I'm annoyed. I'm adoring. I am thoughts, feelings, and sensations. The flow of pet life passing right through the open door of my mind. and from the Sufi poet Rumi. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival. A joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Which quirk of your daily life, experienced perhaps as an irritation, an effort, a task, a sensation, a recurring question might be your mindfulness bell in disguise. Let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.